Welcome to the Modern Work Podcast. I'm Katherine Conaway, and I talk to people about the work they do and how they got there. It's Chrissy Barnum, and I am on remote year, and I currently work as a management consultant at Accenture as my full-time job. I'm constantly fascinated by the stories I hear from the people I meet while I travel the world working remotely. So I decided to sit them down and press record. Lovely to be here in your KL apartment office. Do you have one? I do have one. Do you use it? I do. Really? It's very cozy. It gets warm. It gets warm. (laughs) It is warm right now already. (laughs) There's no air conditioning on for the sake of sound, so. Mm. Yeah, I was on the phone last night and somebody told me I sounded like I was in a wind tunnel. Okay. Mute. Got it. There you go. The the fun sides of digital nomad life is the random stuff in the background of your calls. It's full of intrigue. (laughs) In this episode, I speak with Chrissy Barnum, a management consultant at Accenture and the founder of Impact Beacon. And where just briefly did you come from in life? Great question. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, spent a little over 20 years there, went to university in North Carolina, which feels a lot like home, more so than Connecticut sometimes. And I moved to Washington, D.C. for my job at Accenture. I was there for three years and then started remote year. So geographically, that is the backstory. Connecticut, North Carolina, and D.C. Even now that I haven't lived anywhere for two and a half years, I still say I'm from Texas and New York mm-hmm. because like those places define you. And it's a weird part of our identity, especially when you don't live anywhere, you want to, you still kind of need to be tied to something, even if it's a really vague idea of a place. Yeah, I totally agree. In terms of where I'm tied to, it's probably Washington, D.C., but I'm a, I'm a product of my upbringing in Connecticut and the time I spent in North Carolina. So yeah. I suppose, depending on who's asking the question, I give different answers. Yeah. Right now, you could argue that home is wherever my laptop is. So right now, Malaysia. Right. And my passport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're at home right now. How did you find out about Remote Year and why did you say that's the thing for me? I found out about Remote Year while in the car with a friend from college who was interviewing to go on the first Remote Year program. And she was in the car preparing for her interview. And I was like what is this? I want to do this. So she got into the program. She left in 2015. And a few months later, Remote Year opened up the next round of applications and I was all over that. Um, So I actually had a personal connection on the program and that's what sparked the original interest. And you were interested in it because you really wanted to travel or you wanted to work remotely? Like what made you so interested? There were so many reasons. I think just on a bare superficial level. I love to travel. I always have. So the idea of traveling the world with new friends while maintaining my income sounded pretty awesome. And I wasn't going to say no to that. I think beyond that, I, in my life, have for the most part um, followed a pretty traditional path. I was a great student and then I went to this brand name university in North Carolina and then I got a job at a prestigious consulting firm. And um, it has been rare in my life that I've taken the road less traveled, even though I've always wanted to. Um, So part of me was motivated to do this because Remote Year was this new program and this new movement of digital nomad life. And I wanted to be the guinea pig in something. Um, And probably most importantly, the reason I wanted to do it was to challenge the pretty traditional notion I have of what constitutes a successful career. Um, 
having a job that's full-time with a salary and prestige isn't everything. And I wanted to challenge that idea a little bit. How have you felt that challenge has gone so far? I think it's been great. I've definitely gotten what I've wanted out of this experience. I've realized that life is not a dress rehearsal. We don't get to do this twice. And so um, it's great to be passionate about your work and really commit yourself fully to your job. At the same time, the idea of work-life balance is so true beyond just the superficial association with the term. We live in this amazing, beautiful world with so much complexity, and it's important to engage in that and not get stuck in this one small corner of the world that is your job. I want to talk more about it later, but I think you in particular are really doing a good job while you're on remote year of being aware of the complexities of the world, not just enjoying the travel because you have your job, you have your life. You're actually one of the handful of people here in a relationship that you came with your partner on remote year, Mm -hmm. but you also have this project that you work on, which is Impact Beacon. Yes. And just high level, what is that? Impact Beacon is, as you say, my passion project. It is, at least for now, a blog in which I interview and spotlight social entrepreneurs around the world. Social entrepreneurs being change makers who have cool, innovative projects that are addressing some sort of social need in their community. Um, And it has been a very challenging and rewarding experience to take on this new project and build the skills that I need to implement it. And you've been interviewing people both in the places we've been as well as just randomly in other locations that get in touch with you or refer to you. Yeah, so the original idea was to interview people in person who I met through my travels. And then pretty quickly, within only a month or two, I started to receive inquiries via social media, email, the website, from people who want me to spotlight other organizations and countries that I'm not visiting. Um, And in receiving those inquiries, I realized that a lot of people really want more attention brought to their project. They really want to get their name out there. They want to spread the word about what they're doing. And people really appreciate it when I'm willing to talk to them, hear their story, and share it with the world. And that's awesome. So originally, I was just looking for in-person interviews. But now, um, whoever comes to me, if their project fits the criteria, then I interview them. So it's become a mix. Yeah, I think it's... It's amazing to realize that what so many people want is just for their story to be heard, to have like a witness. I think I realized that when I have, now that I've been traveling for such a long time and I've lived abroad and I've done all this time in different countries, the tourist thing is very interesting and there are things I really like about it, but now I have to come to terms with like, what's the actual purpose of my traveling now that I've gotten past some of that initial high or initial Mm -hmm. sightseeing. And I think I see it, and it sounds maybe a little obnoxious, but I I really do think I see it as witnessing the world and and what other people's experiences are and trying to like either just know it for myself or write about it or share it or draw attention to it in some way. Because I think like once you get past like a selfish, like, cool, I'm doing things, like you realize what you really need to do is be aware of like what's going on. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. That idea of 
having someone witness your work, witness your hard work, and that sense of validation that comes from that is really valid or very valuable to people. Um, and certainly for these entrepreneurs who are pouring their heart and soul into their work, for them especially, it's valuable. And I would argue that they deserve that recognition given that so many people consider starting projects, starting something, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit business, and they never take the leap because they're a little bit scared. So for those who actually jump, that in and of itself is worth celebrating. Yeah. And now that we have blogs and the internet and the connections that we do around the world and technology, it's amazing that we can do things that spotlight somebody in like really rural areas and really far away places so that people we know in America, people we know in Europe, people that don't know each other, but are working on similar projects on different sides of the world can learn about each other. Mm -hmm. Like it, it feels like you need to capitalize on that ability and opportunity mm -hmm. and make it happen. Cause you know, a few hundred years ago, like people would probably love to do that, but there was just, it wasn't even a dream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the nature of our world now is this huge web of connections. I'm consistently amazed by just how people find me. Uh, so, you know, someone with an agricultural business in Senegal or an urban farming enterprise in Jordan. These are places I've never been. I don't know anyone who lives there. And yet somehow they're finding Impact Beacon and they're finding out how to get in touch with me. And we're getting connected that you know, even 10, 20 years ago, wasn't really possible the way it is today. And a program like Remote Year is then enabling us to even meet in person in some cases. So just the, the nature of that network is very exciting and sometimes a little mind boggling for me, but it's all, it's a very positive at the end of the day. Since we're already talking about Impact Beacon, <laughs> I'll go ahead and just talk a little bit more about it. You said it's a blog, you said you interview people. So the primary experience right now with it is social entrepreneurs might be reaching out to you to get featured. And then everybody else is coming to the blog and reading these interviews about what people are doing. You mentioned a couple of people that talked to you. What are a few of the either people, maybe specifically ones that we've met through remote year that you've gotten to actually meet in person? One of the entrepreneurs that I was connected with very early on, this was in our first month in Uruguay, is a woman native to Uruguay. Her name is Victoria, and she has an awesome project. She's worked in aerospace for a number of years, and she basically came up with effectively a Fitbit for livestock. So it's a collar with a sensor in it that cattle wear, and it uses a custom software to analyze the movement of livestock and identify early whether that livestock is falling sick of some sort of disease. Um, so if you think about the cost of a foot and mouth disease outbreak, for example, this technology is helping to prevent and mitigate something like that. The impact that that has on economies that rely on their agricultural like exports, your like your herd <laughs> Just wide, full of cows. <laughs> um, that's huge. And it's so ingenious, so innovative what she's doing. And even now she's traveling around figuring out other ways to apply this technology. You know, could it be applied in sub-Saharan Africa to help prevent poaching of wildlife, for example? Mm. Very cool stuff. Um, never would have met her if I hadn't gone to Uruguay. Um, so that's a really great example and 
part of the reason why sharing her story is so exciting is because there are other countries, even the United States where I'm from, that would benefit from a technology like that. Basically any country raising livestock. These entrepreneurs are solving problems that are really, really local in terms of what that place needs. And we don't often think because of our perspective maybe on the world, how much innovation can come from a country like Uruguay or Sub-Saharan Africa or India, but where there's need, people get really creative and they put things together. And in some ways, because there isn't the same expectation, like you were talking about earlier, of this life trajectory, people just focus on the problems that are around them and use the tools and knowledge they have. So they create these things that are really amazing and end up being potentially life-changing, not just for them, but for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a firm believer in the fact that true innovation is often sparked in areas that are resource constrained because you have to think out of the box in order to solve a problem. And I've seen that whether it's mobile technology applied in South Africa or solar energy used in Indonesia, you know, whatever it is, everyone I've talked to, um, they're thinking creatively about how to solve something in an area where there's limited resources, limited funding, et cetera. Um, and in effectively all cases, whatever the social entrepreneur is doing could be applied in another country, continent. Why was that something that you were aware of? It, it's tied to the actual job that you have in some way? In some ways it is, yeah. Um, so in my day job, as I might have mentioned before, I'm a management consultant at Accenture. And I can talk more about what that means in a second. But um, as a consultant, I work primarily with clients that are large nonprofit organizations. So all organizations that are working in the social impact space or the social sector, they're all trying to make a difference in the world. And one of the trends that Accenture is certainly seeing is that cross-sector partnerships are becoming very common. The private sector, the public sector, et cetera, they're all collaborating together to solve problems. And so within that whole trend, the idea of a social enterprise or a startup for-profit company that's doing something good for the world, that's become very common. And it's popular because it's far more financially sustainable than traditional aid as we knew it you know, 20 years ago. The idea for Impact Beacon, was that something you were thinking of? Or once you were coming on remote year, you're like, oh, this is a project I could do as part of traveling. So Impact Beacon for me started as a way for me to chronicle my travels, tell people at home what I'm doing through this particular lens of social enterprise. So it started as a way of communicating my travels, but quickly evolved into something that is far more professional in nature because I'm enjoying it so much and I can see how others are benefiting from me doing it. You said you're a management consultant at Accenture. And I know a lot of consultants, and I still am pretty sure I don't actually know really what they do. Great. Good question. <laughs> what um, is your job? <laughs> well, so consultants in general are basically either individual or companies that have an expertise in something. And so they work with clients to solve some sort of problem that the client is facing. And for background, a lot of people don't necessarily understand why a client would hire a consultant as opposed to a new staff member. So just to address that right off the bat, typically speaking, let's take a nonprofit client, for example. Let's say they have a huge problem they need to address. 
it makes more sense for them to hire a consultant that has tons of experience and tons of kind of knowledge around that issue, hire them temporarily, solve the issue, and then move on. Makes more sense to do that than to hire new staff members who you won't need indefinitely and who may or may not be able to solve the problem for you. Is that process also helped by the fact that these big consulting companies like Accenture exist in a very well-known way. And so the process of them hiring a consultant or hiring Accenture is easier and faster than the hiring process of getting an employee, or is it not? Well, in terms of recruitment costs, I would imagine it's less expensive because for the most part, clients are aware of who the companies are with the capabilities they need. Um, The procurement process is time-consuming and expensive in its own way. But part of the value proposition of a consultant is that because of their experience and the resources that they bring, they're able to do the work faster and more efficiently because they have so many tools to bear on the on the project. Okay, so a consultant is somebody who's an expert. They come in and they help solve problems. You're a management consultant, which means you focus on helping out with the management problems, such as? <laughs> Good question again. Management consulting, another way of saying that it might be kind of organizational or business consulting. So we're not as focused on, for example, technology or digital technology, but on kind of true management and business areas for an organization. So for example, I'll give you a quick case study of something I did a couple of years ago. We worked with a nonprofit client who was currently operating in four cities. They really wanted to expand to 10, but they wanted to choose their new cities based on data. They wanted to have kind of a data-driven decision regarding where they were going to expand. So they basically came to us and said, where should we go? Help us pick the places and justify the decision. So we spent about two months researching and um, keeping in mind the nonprofit's goals and their success factors. We figured out where they should go and gave them the full data set and justification for why they should go there. That type of project is kind of classic geographic growth strategy. Accenture's done, you know, hundreds if not thousands of projects just like that, which is why it's in the nonprofit's interest to hire us to help with that because we've done it so many times, we know exactly what we're doing. It took two people full-time for two months to do a lot of work, which had the nonprofit just hired a new staff member, it might not have gone as well. And what kind of, when you're doing that work, I mean, I don't know how much is too complicated to explain or private information, but when you're doing that kind of a project, what apps are you using? What work are you, like, how are you actually doing that? A lot of our tools are perfectly accessible. To be honest, most of the time that I'm working, I'm actually, or actually tactically implementing something. I'm using Microsoft PowerPoint, Excel, Word, Outlook, Skype, the same tools that many companies use. Um, One of the benefits to a company like Accenture is that we have access to a lot of of databases and research tools that you need to pay to access. So that's another reason why a client might hire Accenture because we already have subscriptions to all of those things. Um, But speaking to that particular example, we used Excel. So we pulled public data sets from websites, government websites or other websites, 
and did some savvy Excel work to pull all that data get together and use it to assess different cities according to the factors we were considering. So really at the end of the day, it was Excel and PowerPoint for the most part. And how do you know what to do in Excel and PowerPoint that is so valuable? Is that something that you learned in school or they train you formally at Accenture or you pick it up by working on these projects with other people? Um, there is some formal training. And one of the benefits for me of working at a large company like Accenture is the amount of training that's available. There's so much. You could learn something new every day formally if you wanted to. And when you started your job, you were hired at Accenture right out of college. Mm -hmm. Did you do an internship or anything? I didn't do an internship. Many people do, but it is common for people to start a consulting company straight out of school. So you'll have a week or two or more of training and then you jump right in. And that week or two of training, what does that look like? A lot of it is the basics of using some of the tools we've talked about, PowerPoint, Excel, Outlook. Even more so, the focus of those trainings is how do you professionally interact with clients? How do you professionally interact with colleagues at Accenture? Some of it most of it is kind of guidance on how you succeed from a communications and a professionalism standpoint, or at least that's how I viewed the training, which is really valuable because as a consultant, you have to remember that your client is paying for you to be there. They're, quote, always right. You're there to help them achieve their goals. So being able to communicate with them professionally is so important. Well, and as somebody who's not ever had that kind of training at a job, or in life. I definitely can see the value of that. Um, and I think that is, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how there's this feeling of pressure that you need to go college job, you know, it's very formalized and it should be at a firm. Everybody knows the name. Uh, and that's not always necessary. And I haven't followed that path and it has its pluses and minuses. But I think one thing that is really valuable sometimes about having a few years of an experience like that is how much formal training you do get and, and the lessons about networking, the lessons about client communication and that formalized experience. Because at this point in my career, like I wouldn't go back and do something like that mm -hmm. now. And uh, so sometimes I think it can be valuable to start off with something like that, even if you don't stick on the corporate track forever, but I also think then it becomes really hard maybe to move away from it. So and I understand the, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> you, you've hit the nail on the head with that one because um, as you asked me, you know, how I learned these skills to do these projects, some of it is through formal training, but the other is through mentorship and coaching from people who are already there. So for example, when I worked on that project I mentioned before, it was me and one other person full-time. The other person was maybe four or five years older than me, had more experience, taught me so much in only seven, eight weeks about using Excel, interacting with clients, researching these topics online. Even more importantly, she taught me about how to approach a growth strategy project in a structured way. Like, here are the phases you take. This is the approach. This is the, quote, Accenture way that works so well. And now I know how to do that too, and I could teach it to someone else. So that that kind of people element of the consulting industry is why a lot of people like it so much because the mentorship, the coaching is primarily the way you learn in addition to hands-on experience. Um, and the industry tends to attract a lot of really dynamic, smart people. And 
they're a pleasure to work with. So I think that, if nothing else, is the reason so many people spend their entire career in the industry because the people make it so great. So you really like your job? I do really like my job, and I love the people I work with. You're on a pretty small team? I am on a small team. Um, it's primarily me, one or two other kind of junior team members who are in their early mid-20s like I am, and then I work with a handful of senior managers and managing directors who have 10, 20 years of experience, um, and working with them is such a pleasure because they teach me so much. They're very supportive. Um, so yes, I like my job largely because I can work with them. <laughs> and it's a team that's focused on working with the nonprofits specifically? Yeah. So Accenture's practice working with nonprofits is about eight or so years old. It's pretty young compared to the 30-year-old organization. Most of our work takes place in D.C. and New York. Um, so all of us are kind of collected in that area together. And when you were first getting this job, did you know, I'm going to go work with the nonprofit group or you just applied to Accenture and it happened? I applied to Accenture in D.C. knowing the nonprofit group was there. So nobody told me I would get to work with them, but I was kind of like, that's happening <laughs> and I'm going to figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah. It took about a year to get there, but it, it worked out and it's been a very good couple of years since then. So what did you study in school? I studied public policy and global health. And you were at Duke. Is that something that Duke, like you went to Duke for that or you went to Duke and discovered that? I went to Duke for a number of reasons. Um, there, my ability to study public policy and global health was not one of those reasons. I discovered that there. Um, in particular, the global health um, concentration that I had there was an unexpected passion that I stumbled upon while there. You were just taking classes and found out about these things, or did somebody recommend it to you? I just Honestly, I needed a science credit, so I took uh, an HIV-AIDS class to get the science credit, I was kind of like, wow, this is really interesting. It was interesting to learn about how kind of socioeconomic conditions and politics and global relations and all of those things impact people's health locally, um, whether that's in the U.S. or in South Africa or Southeast Asia, wherever it is. Um, the kind of intricacies of that are very interesting to me. So that led to the public policy, the global health, and in addition to that, my interest in development and the nonprofit public sector. It's so funny how these random moments in our lives, whether it's a college course or somebody telling us one thing or somebody recommending like a little college internship or something like that, really, really change the way you see the world and what you pursue in your life. I mean, I studied art history, like I never would have bet on that as a degree, mm -hmm. but I happened to go to a school that had a good program and there was just this huge peer pressure to study this random subject, it's like, okay, I'm not going to not do it if everybody's <laughs> saying you know, FOMO, whatever. And it's really cool, but then it's also almost scary sometimes when you realize how passionate you are about something to know that it was such a random trigger that got you on that path. It's like, if that hadn't happened, like, what would I be so excited about today? Like, what would you wouldn't be doing Impact Beacon if you didn't need a science credit? Like, yeah, there's actually a good story behind that. And you're so right. It's all it's all timing. I spent one summer when I was at Duke living in Zambia, doing some kind of civic engagement work in Zambia. And I remember at one point 
standing in what's effectively a slum in their capital city, and there was a water tank there that had been donated by the U.S. government. It was meant to filter water. It was broken, and nobody in the community knew how to fix it. So it was just this probably expensive piece of equipment donated, sitting and going to no use because no one could fix it. And I remember at the time thinking, that's crazy. Is this, is this approach of just donating things really working? Is this really the best way? And at the time, consulting was not on my radar at all. But that moment and a few things that followed really sparked this question of me and me of, should I be looking at consulting so that I can learn how to approach a problem in a really structured way? There, there has to be a better way for those who care about social issues to approach them and fix them in a way that's smart and structured and logical. And maybe about a year later, I was prepping interviews for Accenture, you know, so it's such strange timing, but it all fell into place perfectly. That's such a crazy story. I love this idea sometimes of like, if I, if my life was a movie, you know, because we're all very... (laughs) I'm very egocentric, I guess. Maybe we all are. But like picturing like if those snapshots all kind of filtered together in something and seeing those moments come together, like you at school, you in Zambia, you in DC, you in Uruguay, like Mm -hmm. those are a lot of different really cool moments that we still don't know what they're leading to exactly. Like maybe in 10 years, like who knows what impact beacon is going to be. Yeah. It's a very exciting montage. We all yeah. have one. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody can make a montage that looks really cool. So how did you make this very traditional consulting job in DC say, sure, go travel for a year on this crazy program and still work for us? <laughs> um, I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I managed to swing that. Um, at the time, no one at Accenture had done remote year. It was very new. I will be the first person to finish the program as an Accenture employee come January when the school adventure ends. So part of the challenge was just introducing my team and broader Accenture to what remote year was because nobody knew. So after I got over that hurdle, I think the way I was effectively able to make it work, um, and again, it was perfect timing, Clients typically don't love to have remote support. They prefer to have in-person team members supporting them on projects. So we knew when I left for remote year that I would need to do largely internal work. Um, So that might be kind of internal Accenture strategy or business development, especially for Accenture. Luckily, I had just spent the last year doing a lot of that. So my team... I hope, knew that I could do a lot of that work self-sufficiently without a lot of oversight. So the nature of my remote work, time zone differences wouldn't be a showstopper. Um, but I think also, so that's, that's kind of tactically why I think it worked out. But from a people perspective, I'm lucky, lucky to be working with a group of people who are A, open-minded to crazy ideas, and B, very committed to making their team a really great place to work. Um, so if I had this goal of doing remote year, they were going to be willing to at least try it to see if it worked. And now we're nine months in and I think it's been working. So it, it's effectively worked out, but, um, yeah, there was definitely a moment there where I wasn't sure it was going to. So very happy. It's really interesting to hear. I think the more and more I learn either from personal experience or from talking to people, how many things we think are capital T truth, 
non-negotiable. This is how this is. That's not really true. Like, yes, some things need to be respected and some rules exist, but it's usually worth asking or pitching an idea that you really want to make happen, whether that's in work or some other part of life, because people are more willing to negotiate things than we think they are. And like situations can be manipulated more. Yeah. I think one of the things I've realized partially through my experience, but also through chatting with other people is that when you're passionate about your job and you're working hard and doing, doing good work, people will go more out of your, their way than you'd expect to keep you around. They would rather be a little flexible than risk losing you, for example. So that's definitely something I've come to realize just by chatting with other remote year participants that retention is a bigger deal than I originally understood. Um, So that's definitely true. Yeah. When I was quitting my job in New York, not for remote year, just I was leaving and I wanted to take some time off from the crazy life of the city. And I told my company that I was quitting and I had never quit a job. I'd only had, you know, like finite timeframes end. I thought that they would like hate me. I didn't know what that meant. Like, I didn't know what quitting would feel like. And they were so nice. And they're like, do you want a sabbatical? Do you want to come? I was like, wait, no, but I just quit. Like what, (laughs) what is this conversation turning into? Like it was, it was amazing. And I've gone back to visit them and it's a very positive relationship. And I, I, I never would have expected that without having gone through it, that these work relationships aren't always what we think they are. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting because when I first started my conversations with Accenture about remote year, I just, my thought process was Accenture being an almost 400,000 person company, it's too big, it's too bureaucratic, too much red tape. They're not going to be able to, to make this work. Um, but first of all, how wrong I was. <laughs> but second of all, since I've started, there are now five, 10 people from Accenture who are doing remote year and many more who have applied, gotten in or are now preparing to leave in October, November, December, January, whatever it is. And I think one of the things I've realized is that even the large companies like Accenture, um, from startup to your mega companies, everybody is realizing that with technology, the concept of work-life balance and and engaging employees and keeping them happy, that's all evolving. And remote work is a big part of that. This digital nomad movement is expanding, not just to your few kind of quote, crazy explorers, but it's enveloping far more of your traditional workforce. So it's interesting for me to see all these people at Accenture who are doing this. um, And just every year, the percentage of American workers who are working remotely growing it's going to be really interesting to see where, where we are in 10 years. Um, it's cool to be part of this journey from the onset. Yeah. I've never been an early adopter. I'm usually <laughs> the last person to get on board, but it is interesting to be part of that from we're the second group of remote years. So we have sometimes a very rough experience, but an amazing experience and getting to do it at the initial stages is really interesting. And then, you know, if we're able to come back and do some of their other alumni things or whatever else later and see what that's like in a year from now when they're at a totally different place. Yeah. will be really interesting. Absolutely. It will be 
It will be cool, certainly, to see what happens. And just to kind of orient our listeners in time, just a couple of days ago, Remote Year announced that they've received $12 million in venture capital support for their project. And first of all, that's crazy and exciting. Um, but it certainly means that that's an indicator, if nothing else, to me, of the momentum that this is gaining. And it will be really interesting in five, 10 years to basically say, yeah, I did the Remote Year program. Oh, no, not recently, like back when it was in beta stage. Oh, yeah, you know? we are we are Batuta, <laughs> but we are really beta. Like that is, <laughs> yeah. that is and, and I saw a Facebook post by Remote Year about them launching Remote Year Business, which I guess is in conjunction with that investment, a way that they're working probably with employers like Accenture and other companies to, I guess, bring more of their team on Remote Year. I really don't know. I can't speak with any information about that, but they're, they're up to things. (laughs) They are. They're up to things. (laughs) They're up to something. Um, so you had the ability to get your job remote. We understand a little bit more about what Mark, uh, management consulting is. I know it probably changes a lot given what your project is, but really a high level, a day in the life of you working at Accenture in DC, you get up, run by Starbucks, go to work for 12 hours. What, like, what did that look like? You're on emails all day, you're in meetings. Yeah. So let's take, for example, the project example that I gave before. I am working with a nonprofit to help them grow to 10 cities in the US. So maybe I wake up, you're right, Starbucks is a must. Uh, come into the office. I shouldn't really get Starbucks all that props. Let me say this. Coffee is a must. (laughs) Come into the office and let's say we're just starting the project. So what we'll do is have a kickoff, which will be a presentation with our clients about, okay, here's what the next eight weeks look like. Here's what we're going to do. And then we'll start having meetings with our clients. So their CEO, their board chair, their chief growth officer, you know, all these different roles. We'll talk to them to say, you know, tell us about your organization. Tell us about your goals. Tell us what makes you successful in a city. We have dozens of conversations like that. We note all of the key information and then we'll create a PowerPoint presentation that summarizes all of it into a really simple framework that we show back to the organization and say, okay, this one slide summarizes what makes you successful in a city. So that's, you know, phase one of the project. Which so takes couple, how many weeks? A couple weeks okay. for two people. For two people. So this is yeah. pretty full time, a lot of conversations, and then a lot of you reflecting on your notes and trying to draw these summaries. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of tools and actual tactical, what we're doing, we're talking, we're taking notes, we're asking smart questions or what we think are strategic questions to get the right information. And then we're using PowerPoint and one of the main skills that consultants learn is how to take something complex and present it in a way that's digestible. So here are some, here's a lot of information, here are some tricky concepts, and we're going to present it to you in a way that makes it easy to digest and easy to think about. That is a skill that takes, from what I've witnessed, years to refine. Every time I think I've managed to master it, my senior manager will come in and poke holes in what I've done. You know, it's, it's something you're constantly learning how to do. Um, so that's that's kind of day in a life. Lots of phone calls, emails, PowerPoint. And after phase one, that's when you do the analysis of figuring out which of those cities 
which cities qualify for yep. those. So that's when you move into, for example, a lot of online research, um, the Excel work that I mentioned, et cetera, things like that. So there are days where you're engaging a lot with clients. You're talking to them, learning from them, facilitating workshops. We call them like stakeholder meetings. So there's some of that. And then there's also a lot of tactical work on the back end where we're doing, we're making visuals or doing research. And is this idea that you work like 60 hours a week or stuff like that true and consistent or what was your workload like? It really depends. On this particular project, we were quite busy, but to be honest, we were so excited about this particular nonprofit and their mission that we were going above and beyond as much as we could. Um, so some of the kind of workaholic reputation that's associated with consulting, I think, is to a certain extent self-imposed because people get so excited to support their client that they go above and beyond. It really depends on the client and the project. Um, Generally speaking, I think that consulting is improving in leaps and bounds in terms of helping its, its people to maintain their own wellness. Um, taking Accenture for an example, we have, even in the last few years since I've joined, started so many programs to support employee wellness, to promote work-life balance, to make everyone feel included and you know part of the Accenture family, et cetera. So, that general movement in the broader workforce, I see that day-to-day at Accenture as well. And then coming on remote year, I know that our experience changes every month in terms of the workspace, the time zone, and, and all these other factors that impact how each one of us does our job. But how have you been working with them on remote year? It's very similar to what we used to do. We have weekly check-ins um, on the phone, which back in DC they would have been in person, but with video chat, it can feel that way if I wanted to. Um, so weekly check-ins, the biggest change is probably that I have a lot more email, which I'm trying to control. Sometimes it spirals. <laughs> um, so that's largely I'm working with them in a lot of the same way as consultants primarily are computer-based people. We do all of our work on our laptops. So as long as I have that and access to a phone, things aren't that different. Um, And now you're working on internal projects. So you're not doing as much of that stakeholder calls and meetings. It's mostly just talking to your team. Yep. So talking to my team, fewer client interaction. To be honest, my day-to-day work doesn't feel much different. What feels different is um, more the office culture. I'm used to having an in-person team where we kind of have ad hoc banter and chit chat at the water cooler, you know, those those kinds of stereotypical interactions, um, which maybe in terms of our day-to-day work aren't that important in terms of getting things done, but as far as the culture goes, that's everything. So in being remote, I feel less of a change in terms of my work, but the change I do notice is that that hole in terms of, man, I haven't actually made a joke with a colleague in a couple of days, you know, whereas normally in the, in the DC office, we'd be joking around and, you know, telling stories and catching up. Do you miss working in your office? I miss working in the office. And it's funny, I didn't think I'd say that. There's this idea of, you know, people hating their cubicle and wanting to unchain from the cubicle but having an office where you can go and maintain a sense of community, that's a 
that's important. And there are lots of digital nomads who have been on the road for years who are now starting to settle down because they want community again. So I think having the flexibility to leave your desk is awesome. And I cannot emphasize enough how much I've appreciated that. But at the same time, were I to be a digital nomad permanently, I would absolutely take advantage of the co-working spaces that have popped up or programs like Remote Year because community is so important to ward off loneliness for sure. Yeah, that's definitely, I think we've all over the months increasingly appreciated about Remote Year is having each other and not doing this alone and having people who are there, even though we don't work together and we don't have the same like schedules and the same pressures and the same projects there's somebody going through that there's other people in the office usually when you're in there even if that's local hours or crazy asia pacific working 15 hour time difference um yeah a couple of years ago i worked on a project i had a really great senior manager i was working for and i remember at one point he said to me of course we have to get things done but chrissy work should be fun you're an adult, you're going to be a working adult probably for decades. Work should be fun. You know, you don't want to waste your life away in this job that isn't fun. It should be fun. And you're breaking all of these myths that I thought were true about consulting. <laughs> well, there, there are people who, I suppose, support the myths, but there are also a lot of gems who are amazing to work for. This person was one of them. Um, and I've always remembered that he said that because... It's so true. It should be fun. And so for people who are in an office and they do hate their cubicle and they do hate the office, part of the solution there might be to find a job where it truly brings you joy to be around the people that you're with. Um, I realized in the few years I've been at Accenture that you can have the dream job. Everything about it is perfect, but it can be made or broken by the people you're surrounded with. Um, and also yeah. you could have a job you maybe don't love. It's not your passion. It's not the perfect job. Because that's a hard thing to know and figure out, especially in the first decade of your career. But if you're with good people and a good team, that work can still be really fulfilling. You can still have a good time going into the office if that environment is good and the support is there. Yeah. Um, now that we're in Asia, we have a 12 hour time difference from the East Coast. Are you working local hours here, nine to five? Or are you working DC hours? It's a mix. I am working local hours to the extent that I can. And that's good because I am not an early morning person and I'm really not a night owl. So trying to keep local hours to the extent that I can. I am managing the time change by staying online from seven to 10 local times so that I catch the morning of DC, um, which is working. Do most people start working at like 8 a.m.? Yeah, DC? most people are starting to fire off emails by 8, 8.30 at the latest. Uh, very committed folks there in DC, <laughs> if that's coming as a surprise to anyone. Um, so a couple of times already I found myself on midnight or 2.30 a.m. calls. And it's funny because the first time I had my 2.30 a.m., went to bed at 3.30, tried to get up the next day by 9 o'clock. I kind of had this attitude about it like, well, I've worked late in the past and been up early the next day before and it's been fine. So, you know, no problem. I can do this. The next day I felt really bad, like <laughs> headache all day, really tired. And I was thinking about why that is. Um, 
And part of me is starting to suspect that just the wear and tear of travel, the the kind of constantly changing and unusual nature of your diet and the time, the time change and jet lag and all of this, it adds up where your body just doesn't quite recover as fast as it would if you were in a place like DC, which feels perfectly like home and you have routine and everything you need. Um, it's I think, different. <laughs> I think I've noticed that also traveling and working and long-term that we don't really value or acknowledge the need of macro recovery. Like, yeah, micro, like I was sick yesterday, so I sleep in today, or I did this hard workout, or I had a late night, so I'm tired 24 hours later. But the idea that traveling for nine months is exhausting me in a very real and consistent way is hard to acknowledge and hard to address because, you know, we think, oh, we're young, or we're healthy, or we're, I'm okay now, I have a bed, I have I'm set up, but the fact is we actually probably are still tired from the past nine months. Yeah, it's funny. I at one point made an offhand comment about needing a vacation, and one of my friends or colleagues at home said something like, Chrissy, you're on vacation for a year. How can you say that? And it's like, man, if this is a relaxing vacation, then I'm never taking vacation again. No, it's, <laughs> that is such a myth. I mean, I'm not saying remote year is not amazing and we don't get to do really cool things constantly because that's a huge benefit. That's why we're here. You know, we can go to Machu Picchu. We can go to Bali. We can go to Paris. Like you get to do side trips on your weekends in incredible places for much less money than in time than it would cost otherwise. But you don't stop working. Like we tend to not take vacation days. You can't take vacation days the entire year. So you still work five days a week or whatever that is. And whereas at home in DC in your apartment, you could just lay around and watch TV sometimes or have a weekend in. There's a pressure when you're doing this lifestyle to make the most because you only have four weeks in this place and you got to see everything in the city. you got to take the side trip. you got to see the sights. Mm-hmm. It is exhausting. Yeah. When you're trying to be a full-time employee and a full-time tourist, at a certain point, you have to just accept, okay, then I guess what I'm going to give up is lazy Sundays and a few hours of sleep a night, right. possibly. <laughs> Which adds up eventually. Yeah. And I think... Of course, I agree that remote year is such an amazing experience. It's worth it. Absolutely worth it. But every once in a while, I have these realizations. I learn something more about myself. Like, okay, 2.30 a.m. calls might have worked really well when I was 22 or 19 or whatever. But as I'm getting older and I, you know, have all this travel going on and all of these competing things, maybe middle of the night calls aren't going to work very well. And I need to come up with a different strategy for handling, you know, communications back with the East Coast. So every week or two, I have these learning moments when I'm kind of like, all right, this is part of learning to be a digital nomad. How do you handle a 12 hour time difference? Now we're in Asia and I'm figuring that out slowly but surely. Yeah. Have you had any exciting successes or anything with work or Impact Beacon, I guess, on a remote year? Yeah, I think there have been both. Um, Within the Accenture world, as I said before, most of our quote non-profiteers are based in the U.S. and in particular Washington, D.C. and New York or Boston. But all over the world, there are Accenture employees who are really passionate about the public sector, really passionate about social impact and working with nonprofits. 
So one of the things I've spent a lot of time on this year is building our global network of those people who really care and creating more of a community so that we can work together and collaborate and um, become more of a nonprofit family around the world within Accenture. And that's been very fun. And I really believe that what we've done so far is working. We're connecting people. They're engaged. It's a slow process. You know, it's difficult to, to say, all right, we've got these people in Australia and how do we make them feel like they're part of the family? You know, so it's a journey, but that's been a success and a, an exciting thing. And have you, Accenture has offices around the world. Have you gotten to visit and work with teams in places on our travels? I've definitely visited with different teams. I've connected with teams in London, connected with teams in Scotland, connected with a team in Peru. The team in Peru is probably the most exciting. I met a bunch of people who are management consultants just like me. We went out for a traditional Peruvian lunch and they had the same kind of familiar banter and just kind of camaraderie as a team that I have with my team back in DC. So it was very cool to see these two very different worlds, you know, Accenture in Peru and Accenture in DC with such similarity. Um, that was very cool to see. So that's some exciting stuff you've done with work in terms of Impact Beacon, other than starting it and having it grow in general, what's been exciting about that over the past nine months? Yeah, I think the there have been a lot of really exciting milestones with Impact Beacon. I would say definitely one was the first time someone reached out to me to say, hey, I saw your blog online and I know this social entrepreneur in Senegal who it would be really cool for you to talk to. It's like, what? <laughs> that was so exciting that... I, this person just found me and reached out and put me in touch with someone who I ordinarily wouldn't have met. When that first happened, it felt so surreal and crazy. And now it's become part for the course that happens at least a couple times a week, which is very cool. Um, I, I think the other kind of exciting moment was just seeing my worlds collide. I met a social entrepreneur in Argentina who's doing something very cool with an innovative technology that he's working on. And what he's trying to build would be really applicable to a lot of Accenture clients, um, not only my own specific clients, but even beyond that. So it was, it was cool. I got in touch with some of our people who work in Accenture's technology labs in France, and they met this guy from Argentina through me, and we had a conversation. And that just felt like, I don't know, the degrees of separation between people falling away that... I can leave DC, go to Argentina, meet a guy, introduce him to someone in France, and we're just all having conversations about global issues and how to solve them. It's really exciting to feel like my network and my awareness of innovation around the world is really growing. And it's only been nine months. So that, if nothing else, is what keeps me moving forward. That's really exciting. That's really cool. Yeah. That's a really cool story. Impact Beacon, people, you have the website, which is impactbeacon.com. Mm -hmm. You have Twitter and Instagram. What's, if people are interested about these things, the best thing is for them to just go on the blog and read about it. And then they can follow up with projects and people as they see an interest or if they have ideas or whatever else. Yeah, absolutely. So people should read the posts. <laughs> step um, one. Yeah, step one, go to impactbeacon.com. But for anyone who knows of really cool, interesting projects, there's a nominate page on the website where they can tell me more about those projects. We have, as you say, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, you know, all the different social media outlets. 
right now what I'm thinking a lot about is how to keep the keep Impact Beacon relevant for my audience and even increase its relevancy. So if anyone has ideas around different ebooks or tools that Impact Beacon could create and share, that would be helpful. Or if there are specific topics people are interested in hearing about, I would like to know. So that's another area in which people can get involved and help me in, in growing this. And that would just be a matter of emailing you, hi, I have this idea, or I, I think this could be a great tool, or... Yeah, and whether it's email or a Facebook message, whatever it is, one of the things that I'm trying to really instill in Impact Beacon is this culture of openness and collaboration. So, for example, when I spotlight someone, I don't then just drop it. I follow them on social media. I keep in touch with them. I try to be a supporter going forward. So that idea of being open to everyone's ideas and creating a space for collaboration, that's kind of the core value of Impact Beacon. So any ideas that people have, I will at least entertain. So there's the whole universe of ideas. I'm open to them. And and the idea also is to help facilitate more of that networking and connections between people. Yeah. And so that's like a future growth thing that you're looking at as ways you can connect these entrepreneurs to each other or to people who have expertise or I guess potentially even investment maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the type of thing that I do informally, but we haven't kind of established a structured way that we're going to be connecting people. Um, But that's definitely on the radar for the future. Very cool. Do you, I'm sorry to ask this question, (laughs) do you know what you want to do after remote year? I do. Um, And it's been such a journey and, um, you know, my colleagues back in Accenture will have to forgive me for saying this, but it's been such a roller coaster of navigating my feelings regarding the end of remote year. When I first started remote year, I was like, I don't want to go back to DC. How can I go back after this experience? You know, it's, it's so much ups and downs. You know, one day I'm like so excited to go back and the next day I want to be a digital nomad forever. And it's this mixed bag of emotions, but I have finally landed on something and it's stayed consistent. I would like to go back to DC. I came to Accenture to learn how to be a strategist and I'm still not done with that journey. We are doing a lot of cool work at Accenture, helping nonprofits with their digital technology strategy, their leadership development strategy. There's so much cool strategy work to be done, and I've only barely scratched the surface. So I'm going to go back, hopefully continue to increase my experience there. Um, And for a while, I wasn't sure what I would do about Impact Begin. I'm pretty sure I'm going to keep going with it. Um, It's just too fun and too valuable to me professionally to let go. So as of February 2017, I will be a DC management consultant once more with a really awesome passion project on the side. So it sounds like all good things will continue in 2017. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm sure they'll be very happy to have you back. I hope so. (laughs) One can only hope. Since we recorded the interview together in Kuala Lumpur, Chrissy has since finished remote year, which included months in Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam, moved back to Washington, D.C., and is working in person again at Accenture. She's still running Impact Beacon and went to Seed Stars Conference in Lausanne, Switzerland in April. For more information or to subscribe to our newsletter, please go to our website at modernworkpodcast.com. This is a passion project that is self-funded with support by listeners and friends via Patreon. Visit modernworkpodcast.com to learn more about how to contribute. Thank you for listening and please share.